Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Good, good morning to everyone out there. We, uh, we had to add some chairs in the back. I think that's a good problem to have, so we're excited uh, for everyone that is here today. And uh, as, we, as we gather today, I wanted to let you know that I've got, uh, I've got some good news. Uh, the good news will uh, we'll come here in a, in a second. Uh, but I want you to know that I, I recently was reading uh, some, some research. And uh, research sometimes is taken out of context. Sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes people uh, repeat things that they hear. And sometimes research uh, can be... Uh, no, just wrong to tell you the truth. And so the, the good news is uh, it's coming. But let me tell you, first of all, that, uh, that, that uh, it's, it's been recently reported that, that half of marriages in the United States end in divorce. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mark, that's not good news. Like I said, that's not the good news. It's coming. Okay, it's coming. All right. Uh, but that stat is usually repeated because once upon a time in the 1980s, someone, someone estimated that half of marriages that would, that would happen that year would end in divorce, and it just kept getting repeated and repeated. And repeated and repeated. And then someone started saying the stat, and it's also the same for people in the church. It's also the same for Christians. Half of marriages end in divorce, and half of Christian marriages end in divorce. And the reality is that that's not true. That report was just something that that got repeated. In fact, uh, current research shows that uh, about two in three marriages will stand the test of time. Research shows uh, that the majority of marriages are lasting. That is the good news. Now, I know that, that some of you in the room have, have been a part of a, a divorce situation. Some of you in the room have seen the effects of divorce, and sometimes uh, we're tempted to be uh, let down by that, simply put. But I like to think that God invented marriage for a reason. God created marriage for a reason. And so this morning, we want to talk about exactly why God created marriage, what it's supposed to represent, and, and why this institution of marriage is so important. I also know that there are some people in the room who are like, Mark, I am single as a Pringle. I heard that this week, and I wanted to work it into my message, so we got it there, okay? Uh, single as a Pringle. I'm not talking to anyone. I'm not dating anyone. I don't need to talk to anyone. I used to talk to someone. I don't want to talk to people like that anymore. I'm just, I'm not in this marriage setting. This doesn't apply to me, and I want you to know that this topic of marriage is an important one, and it's one that, that does, in fact, apply to all of us, because God created the institution of marriage to represent his relationship with his children. God wants the relationship between a husband and a wife to echo his relationship with the church. And so in the same way that we see love and intimacy and sacrifice between a husband and a wife, that's supposed to remind us of the love and intimacy and sacrifice that we can have with our Heavenly Father. And so we've been in this series called Before You Do, After You Did. We're talking about love, dating, marriage, sex, all of these things. And this final week, we want to close this chapter, close this series, and talk through marriage. We want to specifically talk through setting the tone. What does it look like for us to have marriages and relationships that are centered on Christ And if you're one of the people in the room that's thinking, this doesn't apply to me, I want you to know that everything that we're going to speak about a marriage is something that is directly applicable to your relationship with Jesus. And so we want to just go ahead, get started, and and jump right in. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, if you're thinking, Mark, I didn't bring a Bible, we're way ahead of you. There's probably one under your chair or under the the chair of the person next to you, in front of you, behind you, somewhere that you you can open up to Ephesians 5. We're going to be on page 897. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 33, we're, we're going to be uh, reading that passage and talking about what it means for our marriages and our lives to honor Christ. 
And as we jump into this passage, I want you to know some context to this. The, the book of Ephesians was written to the church in this town of, of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was an interesting place. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a, uh, what you, you might call a learned city, right? It was a, it was a, it was a place where there was a, actually, at that time, the third largest library in the world. And so maybe what you know of Columbus, we've got some hillbillies like myself too, but we also have a very academic crowd that likes to hang out downtown at a very great university. We've got people who are smart. We've got great libraries, and we know what it looks like to be in a city that's considered kind of academic. And so in this time, this this city of Ephesus uh, had the third largest library in the world, and, and not just that, but um, they had a lot of people that liked to stand on the laurels of their, their intelligence. But here's the crazy thing. Their intelligence and their regular life didn't really mix, and I'll tell you what I mean. The, uh, across the street from this uh, third largest library in the world, there was a brothel, and it was, it was a regular occurrence for guys to say, hey, I'm going to go and visit the library, I'm going to hang out there, I need to go study, I need to go learn, and, and there was actually an underground tunnel that would go to this brothel, and so a lot of these guys were saying, I'm this person, I'm smart, I'm intelligent, I'm going to study, and yet they would have a mistress or two, and they would spend time at the brothel, and so they would say they were one thing, and they would end up being another, and so the foundation of families in Ephesus was, was nothing special, and, and there was also a, a temple there, the temple of Artemis, or, or Diana as it's translated, and, and that religion, that cult had gone a long way into tearing down the fabric of families and marriages in relationships in, in Ephesus, and, and so I just want to give you that background, that context, that this passage is being written to a, to a group of people to a region, to a city, to an area where the family is not really respected. The family might look okay on the outside, but the family is in terrible condition. And these are people who have recently come to know that they were loved by Jesus. These are, these are people, as the, as the gospel is spread, as the church is spread, they've recently come to realize that no matter what they do, no matter how they fall short, Jesus loved them in spite of their shortcomings, and he came and gave his life and lived a perfect life and paid the price for whatever was, was coming to them because of their sins. And so the gospel has come to this region, a new church is being formed, and, and they're trying to, to write back into their lives and say, okay, what does this mean for how my marriage has looked? What does this mean for how my relationship has looked? What does this mean for how our family has looked, how I've functioned as a parent, how I, how I, how I visited this library or pretended to visit this library? What does this mean for me? And I want you to know that the gospel has been revolutionary, but sometimes it's hard for us to link the gospel and the life change that comes with the gospel and the patterns that we've already set in life. And so Paul is writing this letter back to this church and he's saying, if you think the gospel is revolutionary, here are some things that you need to stand on. Here are some things that you need to know. Here are some changes that you need to make. So there's our background. We want to jump into Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, page 897. I'll read this and, and you can read along. This is what Paul is saying. And this is how the gospel changes lives and marriages. Verse 15 says this. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools but live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I think sometimes we hear a passage like that and we get caught on one or two words, but I want you to know just the the thrust of that. He's saying, you may be tempted to think you're wise, but here is what true wisdom is. True wisdom is walking in step with the Holy Spirit. If you have entrusted your life to Jesus and you've been given the Holy Spirit and you're walking in step with God, you should be saying, God, what do you want from me today? What do you want from my life today? He's laying this foundation that that is true wisdom. That's where our minds and our hearts and our lives should always be. And he goes on to talk about spirit-guided relationships, speaking specifically to husbands and wives. Verse 21 says this, and further... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the first thing that he says to married people is, you're not following your spouse. You may be tempted to look at your spouse and think that you're following your spouse and be mad at your spouse and not be happy with your spouse and see all the ways that that they fall short. But he's saying that's not who you're following. You're following God. You're submitting your life to Christ. Last week, we had a a guest speaker, my friend Dan, and and he explained that there's kind of a a triangle between God and a husband and wife, and if the husband and wife want to grow closer, they don't need to look to each other, they just need to look to God and take steps toward him, and as they grow to know him and grow in their intimacy, they'll find that they're closer together. This passage is again telling us that foundation. Everything that we do as husbands and wives in marriage, we should be looking to Christ, We might be tempted to think, oh, I have to do this. Oh, the ball and chain wants me to do this. And you're not following that person. You're honoring that person, but you're honoring Christ first as you look to him. And so if you want to have a spirit-guided relationship, you need to think about this, this concept here first. We need to think about submission before selfishness, right? Because we're going to want things our way, and we're going to want the other person to do things our way, and we're going to want things to be a certain way, and yet that's not the tone that's being set. If we want to set the tone, we need to think about submission before selfishness, and we need to specifically think about this concept. What is God asking me to do in this moment? How does that apply to my relationship? How does that apply to my marriage? Verse 22 goes on to say this, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's one of those verses that's, that's often taken out of context. There are people who hear that verse and, and they, they, they know that politically they don't agree with that verse and they think, well, Christians are saying that women should never have a job outside the home and women should wear denim jumpers and homeschool their kids and they should always stay there. And this is, this is not saying any of that. Here's what this is saying. This verse is saying that you should understand your spouse. You should work to serve your spouse. And I think, simply put, it's saying this, that sometimes we need to lean in before we lash out. If you're supposed to be working with someone and you're supposed to be having a a family and a life with someone and you're supposed to look to someone and follow their cues sometimes, you need to understand that person. And so sometimes when you see your spouse coming up with a concept or they're suggesting something and you're tempted to say, that's stupid, I'm not doing that, either our kids, either our family, that's a terrible idea, you may want to say, what do you mean when you suggest that? Why are you suggesting that? Why do you think that our family should do that? Why do you think that we as a married couple should do that? Sometimes we have to lean in and understand a person before we just lash out and and say what we think and and what we know. We have to yield to to what God is doing in their heart and their life. It doesn't mean that they'll always be right. It doesn't mean that they're perfect, but we need to, to yield a little bit before we just start yelling at that person. Verse 23 says this, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. 
As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now again, some people hear these verses and they think, oh, so men are awesome. Men are in charge of everything and women are just doormats. And that's not what these verses are saying. Because every time I read these verses, I realize that I'm a terrible husband. You can write that down if you're taking notes, honey. I'm a terrible husband, all right? I read these verses and I get nervous, right? I mean, these verses are saying that we're supposed to love our wives and love our families as Christ loved the church. And we all know how Christ loved the church. He gave his life up for the church. He went on the cross and gave his life as a sacrifice for the wrong things that we have done. So saying that we're supposed to love and lead our wives is not saying that we just get to call the shots and tell everybody what to do and play boss, man. It's saying that we should be serving our wives and serving our families. And I'll I'll give you a a little secret here. I've never seen someone who is sacrificially loving and serving their family that their family doesn't want to follow them, right? We've all known someone who knows their title, maybe a boss that you've worked for and likes to talk down to us and tell us what we have to do because they're awesome and they're in charge and people don't always like to follow that person, right? But if someone has your best interest in heart and they're trying to bring out the best version of you and they're loving you and serving you and sacrificing for you, I've never seen someone that doesn't want to follow that person and be a part of that team. that's what this passage says for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church he is the savior of his body the church as the church submits to Christ so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything I think for many people in the room there was probably a moment where they realized that their wife their life wasn't wasn't headed where they wanted it to go because they had chosen their own way and they'd been selfish and they pursued things that they wanted and yet they found out that Jesus loved them in spite of that When you find out that someone loves you in spite of your faults and and no matter what you do, no matter what you've done, I think most people are drawn to love and sacrifice and leadership like that because that's, that's not a contract that can be broken. That's a covenant that's permanent. That's a love that's not going anywhere. Verse 25 goes on to say, he gave up his life for her talking about Jesus in the church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. So what does it look like for a man to lead his family and lead his wife and lead in a relationship and love as Jesus loved the church? Some of us probably feel pretty clueless when it comes to that and kind of ill-equipped and like we don't know what's going on and we don't know what to do. And I love that this verse basically just spells it out. It says that our job is to prepare our families for eternity, to prepare our wives to lead and love and serve our wives. And and we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be everything. We don't have to know everything. It's just saying that we need to wash them and cleanse them with God's word. That's the the magic serum. That's, That's everything in a relationship. And so if you're not spending time in God's word, you're gonna get it wrong. But if you are spending time in God's word, That's really all you have to do. And so you should be reading God's word and processing God's word and speaking God's word into your family and into your marriage. 
and writing encouragement notes that contain verses of God's word and praying through God's word. This verse doesn't say that you have to make X amount of dollars or you have to be a published author who has these amazing theories on parenting and relationships and you have to read Chicken Soup for the Soul and every other book that's come along in the New York Times bestseller and you better be emotionally ready. It doesn't, it doesn't say any of that, although some of those things are good things. It says that our job is to love and cleanse our families with, with God's word. So, fellas, if you find yourself confused or intimidated or wondering where to start, start in God's word. Let God's word pour into your life and change your heart and let that pour out into your family. Let that pour out into the way that you love them, the way that you serve them, the way that you speak to them, the way that you communicate to them, and the way that you pray to them. We make it difficult, but it seems to be pretty easy there if we're devoted. Verse 27 says this. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. It goes on to to say this. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. And so if we're going to have spirit-guided marriages, spirit-guided relationships, if we're going to care about others, this, this verse is just saying this, hey, you know what it's like to be selfish. Some of us are like, no, I've never been selfish in my life. I don't understand that, right? But, but we do. It says you care for your own body every day. Except those of you who have young children, you find spit up on your shoulder and you just leave it there because you're tired of changing clothes, right? But, but, but most of us know what it's like to care for our own body. We think, hey, I need a haircut. Hey, I'm going to put on some makeup today. Hey, I'm not going to put on some makeup today. Hey, I'm going to take a shower. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to care for myself. I'm going to practice basic hygiene. I'm going to do some things to make myself look better and to care for myself. And hey, I think I need, it's been a while since I cut my fingernails. I want, I want them to look nice for, for work this week. I'm, I'm going I'm to put some lotion on. I'm going to moisturize because I want people to know that I'm ready to tackle the world, right? And so we know what it's like to care for ourselves. And Paul's just saying, show that same devotion that same devotion that you show for yourself that, that maybe we could call devotion and maybe we could call self-care and maybe we could call selfishness the same way that you care for yourselves. He's saying show that for your spouse. Show that for your wife. And so sometimes we just need to, to show a little bit of devotion before emotion because sometimes we'll see our spouse caring about themselves and, and we'll see our spouse caring about what they want in that moment and we'll be tempted to think, you are so selfish. I'm not selfish, but you have a problem. All you ever think about is yourself. And yet what if, what if we believed, like scripture says, that we are one flesh when we're in a relationship and we're married? What if we believed that we are one flesh and there was no end of them and beginning of us and where, where one life ends, another one begins? No, we're all one flesh. And so the same way that we care for ourselves, we would have to show that same amount of care and respect and love and nourishment for them. We would have to be devoted to them as we are devoted to ourselves. And what if we, dis, what if we responded with a little bit of that, that demotion instead of emotion and just said, hey, I I care about us. I care about you. I'm going to look out for you. I'm going to care for you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to see what you need right now, and I'm going to meet your needs. That would be devotion before emotion. Verse 29, as we just read, no one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. 
As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, this this passage isn't saying anything really crazy. It's just saying that marriage is an equation that's built on this premise that we should be looking to Jesus to lead us. And when we're looking to each other, when we're looking for our spouse to complete us or to lead us, we're gonna find that we're, we're not happy with that person. Why? Because you're married to a sinner and you're married to an imperfect person. And no matter what your husband has told you, he has made at least one mistake before, all right? And he's, he's not perfect. And so if you're looking for him to be perfect, you're going to be severely let down. But these verses say that, that God has still designed this institution and that when we leave our previous life behind, when we leave our, our family behind, we become one flesh and that God draws us together. And God wants us to share life and, and share everything. And the way that, that that bond is unbreakable, the way that we share everything is the same way that our Heavenly Father has said, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I am is yours. And I want you to be a part of my family, a part of my life, and I want you to be with me for eternity in heaven. And if you find that your marriage isn't working sometimes or your marriage doesn't feel right or your relationships don't feel right, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the mission before me. I want you to think about the mission of marriage before you think about yourself. Because the mission of marriage is to illustrate illustrate God's perfect and holy love and his sacrificial love and the way that he serves us. And if you're thinking about yourself, guess what? You're representing yourself. You're representing all of, the, all of the things that you are and all of the ways that you're selfish and you're not representing the mission or the purpose of marriage. And so sometimes we just have to stop and take a deep breath and say, why am I in this relationship? Why has God given me this relationship? Why are we having trouble right now? We're having trouble right now because I'm being selfish, because I'm thinking of me. I'm not thinking about the mission of marriage. Think about the mission of marriage. God wants us to reflect his love. God wants us to be servant-minded. God wants us to set the tone. And research has proven that couples who share the same faith, who regularly attend church services together, have a reported higher level of marital satisfaction. We talked about this last week, but, but stats have shown that those who are involved in activities in the church report that they're pleased with their marriage and they feel like it's going in a great direction. And The most interesting thing about this is people who take those practices home, who let their spiritual lives cross over each other. It might be reading scripture together. It might just be having conversations. It might be praying together. But those couples we found are are almost divorce-proof in their marriage if they are consistently letting their lives intersect and letting their spiritual lives intersect. Jesus came and, and gave his life and sacrificed so that we could know him. And we're called to echo that same sacrifice into our relationships and into the life of our marriages. We have a chance to, uh, to see that echoed today. And so I want you to go ahead and, and look up to the screens now and, and check out this video as we continue. 